Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Sean A. Mirsky, a lawyer and U.S. foreign policy scholar, has written a book about how the United States became a regional hegemon in the century following the Civil War and what it took to become a global superpower. The book, We May Dominate the World, Ambition, Anxiety, and the Rise of the American Colossus, is published by Public Affairs and brings Sean Mirsky to our show now. He has worked on national security issues for several U.S. presidents, is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and he's currently a visiting scholar at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Welcome to our show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Is the century following the Civil War a lost chapter of American foreign policy? That's certainly the way I describe it, because I think for many Americans, the, the, the post-World War II story of American foreign policy is the story that they're familiar with. They know the Cold War. They know the decades after the Cold War, you know, especially, of course, the, you know, the forever wars that we've been fighting uh, since 9-11. Uh, but I'll, some of the earlier chapters of U.S. foreign policy before we are a global superpower, I think, are a little less well-known. Well, didn't the United States begin as an isolationist country? Well, it's true that the United States is always, uh, not always, but for a long time was isolationist vis-a-vis uh, -vis Europe. But uh, as Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice likes to say, uh, if we are isolationist, then how did we get to be so big? Uh, and I think that sort of captures uh, the spirit of a large uh, of the U.S. foreign policy in the Western Hemisphere, where, you know, we began as 13 colonies on the East Coast clinging to the seaboard, surrounded by hostile powers. Uh, and eventually we grew to become, you know, the size of a continent. And then in the story I tell in my book to, to dominate much of the hemisphere. And so that isolationism has been an important part of U.S. foreign policy, but it's been more real vis-a-vis uh, -vis Europe than it has towards uh, the Western Hemisphere itself. The Monroe Doctrine, which was articulated by President James Monroe on December 2, 1823, during his seventh annual State of the Union address to Congress, stated a U.S. foreign policy position that opposed European colonialism in the Western Hemisphere and held that any intervention in the political affairs of the Americas by foreign policies, by foreign powers, was a potentially hostile act against the U.S. How was it received by the UN, the European colonial powers? Uh, not well, I think would be the, the short answer. Uh, most European chancelleries, uh, when they first heard of the Monroe Doctrine, doubled over and started laughing because it was such a presumptuous thing for this little power on the other side of the ocean to be saying, essentially, you know, there's this new keep out sign in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and you all are forbidden from crossing mm -hmm. over and doing anything in the Western Hemisphere. The U.S. So, lacked both a credible Navy and Army at the time. Exactly. There was just no way for the United States to enforce this. This was more aspirational than anything else. And so most European powers didn't even bother responding to the, to the message. They just considered it ridiculous. At that time, had nearly all the Spanish colonies in the Americas either achieved or were close to independence? It was close, yeah. And, at that, and that was in large part what motivated the Monroe Doctrine, that the United States saw its hemisphere trending in the direction of Republican, uh, even Democratic governments and away from colonialism. And there was this concern among Amer American policymakers that uh, some of Europe's great powers 
might try to intervene in the hemisphere to reverse that and essentially to recolonize much of Latin America. And so the Monroe Doctrine was in many ways a warning to Europe's powers that that uh, would not be allowed by the United States. Although, of course, as we've been discussing, there was not much that the United States could realistically have done about it. But we would view it as a threat to U.S. security. Absolutely. And for the United States, that makes perfect sense. I mean, having European great powers with their massive militaries and their massive navies sitting right on our borders or close to our borders is inherently the sort of national security threat that uh, the United States has always understood um, is something that it cannot really allow if it wants to be safe. But didn't Monroe also say that the United States would recognize and not interfere with existing European colonies and not meddle in the internal affairs of European countries? Exactly. So that was the trade-off. The U.S. would be isolationist vis-a-vis -vis Europe, and then in exchange, Europe would have to not meddle in the Western Hemisphere. Was Monroe warning that efforts by European powers to control or influence those sovereign states would be viewed as a threat to U.S. security? Yep, that's exactly the... That was exactly the message. And one of the things, so the Monroe Doctrine was defensive through and through. It was essentially telling Europe what the United States would consider to be a threat to its national security. But critically, what the Monroe Doctrine didn't say is what the United States would do in response to that threat. And that sort of open question uh, ended up giving the United States a lot of leeway in its later foreign policy to take uh, different measures, including some that ended up being, I think, quite aggressive. But during the U.S. during the U.S. Civil War, didn't France and Spain make moves into Mexico, challenging the Monroe Doctrine? Yes, and so in the four decades after the Monroe Doctrine was announced, Europe's great powers flouted it relatively regularly. But one of the biggest sort of um, uh, rejections of the Monroe Doctrine occurred during the Civil War, when the United States obviously was distracted by its internal conflict and really unable to do anything about European interventions in the hemisphere. And uh, uh, France, under French Emperor Napoleon III, took advantage of this moment, took advantage of the United States' weakness to invade Mexico and to occupy Mexico uh, uh, over the course of essentially a few years. And by late, uh, by 1864, France controlled the majority of Mexico. And at that point, the French emperor imported an Austrian uh, Habsburg archduke, a gentleman by the name of Maximilian, um, and sent him to Mexico to be the new emperor of Mexico, uh, a puppet emperor who would essentially dance to France's strings. And of course, from the United States perspective, this this new French protector right on the U.S. border was just absolutely unacceptable. And how long did that last? Not very. Uh, by the entire uh, Mexican empire collapsed uh, by essentially mid-1867, and in large part because the United States just simply uh, would not allow it to exist. And so the Civil War functionally ended in April 1865, the U.S. Civil War. And three months later, uh, General Grant had sent uh, 50,000 men to uh, Texas to, to essentially prepare for an invasion of Mexico from the United States. And I, the, the opening chapter of my book starts with this episode in part because I just find it to be such a uh, shocking and sort of surprising um, 
statement of kind of what the United States cared about. I mean, the thing to remember is that the Civil War is the most destructive conflict that the U.S. has ever fought in its history. And less than three months afterwards, the U.S. was preparing to go to war with France, one of Europe's great powers, because it cared so much about not having a European uh, puppet state right on its borders. And as it turns out, that war never happened uh, by thanks to the intervention of the Secretary of State, the U.S. ended up not formally crossing the border and invading Mexico to kick France out. But we did launch a proxy war. We did send uh, supplies, some men, and in general, a lot of aid over the border to some Mexican rebels, who in turn ended up overthrowing Emperor Maximilian and kicking the French out of Mexico by 1867. But that border with Mexico has always been rather fluid. And for a time, Texas was part of Mexico, wasn't it? It was. Yep. Texas uh, eventually seceded from Mexico before being annexed by the United States, which in turn led to the Mexican-American War a uh, uh, decade and a half before the start of the Civil War. And in, in part, the Mexican-American War was a large reason why Europe was so concerned about the United States and why Europe itself wanted to come back into the Western Hemisphere in order to check the rise of the United States. There was this concern among European leaders that if something weren't done, the United States would continue expanding over the entire hemisphere and eventually become so powerful and so dominant that uh, no one would be able to stop it from crossing the ocean and intervening in Europe itself. What about Spain? After all, Mexico had been originally a Spanish colony. So Spain was uh, occupied with its own recolonization project uh, in 1861, I think just a matter of weeks after the Civil War began in the United States, uh, Spain ended up recolonizing the Dominican Republic. And uh, like the French occupation of Mexico, this uh, Spanish project in the Dominican Republic did not fare well. Uh, the Dominicans, as it turns out, were in no mood to be recolonized by the Spanish. And so uh, within a few years, you see a relatively bloody insurgency that leads uh, the Domin that leads Spain to be to essentially decide to withdraw from the Dominican Republic, uh, I believe, in by mid-1865, shortly after the U.S. Civil War ended. And again, part of the calculation on the part of Spanish leaders was the U.S. Civil War has ended. We know that the United States does not want uh, European powers in the region. And we know that if we try and stay in the Dominican Republic, it's going to move aggressively against us. So better to leave now while the getting is good rather than to, to stay on. Did the U.S. actually send any uh, threats to Spain? It did or early warnings? on. Uh, so Secretary of State uh, William Henry Seward, when he comes into office, um, not only does he send threats to Spain over uh, the Dominican Republic, but he actually approaches Lincoln with something that's called the April Fool's Memorandum, mm -hmm. uh, in part because it was such a harebrained scheme. But he essentially came to Lincoln on April 1st, 1861, and he said, look, the way to avoid the Civil War, the uh, upcoming Civil War, is to unite the South and the North against an external threat. And that external threat should be the European powers. So in order to avoid the Civil War, we actually ought to go to war uh, affirmatively with Europe's great powers, starting with Spain. And Lincoln, I think, wisely understood that this plan was never going to work and that the South was planning to, or had already seceded, but was uh, not going to be brought back into the fold simply because a European threat loomed. And so the Seward's plan never came to anything, but Seward uh, initially took a very, very aggressive attitude towards Spain uh, in the Dominican Republic. 
the problem was that within a few months, the uh, the civil war was not going well for the North. The North, in fact, had lost almost all the initial battles or had thus drawn them. And so uh, Seward realized that it was just going to be impossible for the United States to both simultaneously defeat the South and also to kind of maintain, um, to successfully kind of maintain an aggressive stance against Europe's powers. And so Seward ends up adopting this policy of watchful waiting for most of the Civil War, where he uh, essentially keeps a close eye on Europe's uh, depredations in the region, but waits until the end of the Civil War to do anything about them affirmatively. Well, if we had remained united and gone to war with Spain, wouldn't Spain have been the more powerful country at that point? Or had uh, the United it, States already caught up with Europe? So Spain by that point was a declining power. I think it's hard to say exactly what, what the military balance of power looked like. Um, this wasn't an academic question, though, because in uh, later in the 1860s, uh, Cuba, uh, which is at that point still a Spanish colony, rebels against Spain and launches what's called um, the Ten Years' War. And at one point, uh, Spain, in its efforts to put down that Cuban revolution, uh, ends up executing a number of American citizens. And the United States comes very close to war with Spain. But part of the reason that it doesn't yet go to war with Spain over Cuba um, is because there's this understanding that the U.S. military at that point is just in no shape to, to deal with Spain. And so it really isn't until a few decades later, when the U.S. has been building up its military for a while, that the U.S. feels comfortable going to war with Spain. And that's, of course, in part why the Spanish-American War happens in uh, 1898. So what led to our regional foreign policy in the 19th and early 20th centuries with the annexation of Hawaii, the Spanish-American War, the military occupations of Cuba, Haiti, Panama, and other places? So the argument that I make in the book is that the United States was uh, uh, pursued a very aggressive and offensive uh, foreign policy in the sense that it was regularly intervening in this neighbor's affairs in ways big and small. Did it matter it who was, the did, president was? It, and it, No, it did not. So, And this is one of the more remarkable things about the period, that regardless of whether it was a Republican president, a Democratic president, a business president, an anti-business president, um, you know, a military man, a Quaker, it didn't really matter. U.S. foreign policy was remarkably consistent, both in the uh, way in which interventionism sort of rose to be the key tool in American foreign policy, but, and then also uh, in the decline. And so part of the, the point that I make in the book is that there was this period, you know, these decades where U.S. interventionism, interventionism really crested and Republicans started it, but it was under a Democratic administration that this this interventionist wave reached its peak. Um, but at the same time, Republican presidents were also the ones who started withdrawing from the strategy, uh, this strategy. And it was, again, a Democratic president where interventionism really reached its uh, its lowest point. And so the presidents actually did not have that much of an impact in terms of uh, changing the foreign policy from administration to administration. Instead, the argument that I make is um, that there was a constant sort of structural constraint on U.S. foreign policy. And, and to understand this, it's worth taking a step back and, and realizing that at this time period, the rest of the world was undergoing what historians sometimes call the second age of imperialism, hmm. which 
is this uh, multi-decade uh, period where Europe's great powers really colonized essentially all of Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. Um, and the statistics are really shocking. I mean, from 1970 to 1900, Germany, Great Britain, and France alone colonized 9 million square miles, which is more than twice the size of Europe itself. Um, Africa, Middle East, uh, Asia are all uh, uh, carved apart. Uh, by the time you get to World War I in 1914, 85% uh, of the world's landmass is under the control of, your, of, of colonial powers. And the remaining 15%, a large part of it was in the Western Hemisphere. And so throughout this entire period, the United States was constantly worried that Latin America was next on Europe's menu, that if, that if the United States did not do something to protect uh, Latin America from Europe, um, that Europe's great powers would come in and start colonizing and partitioning the rest of the Western Hemisphere. And as we know from both the Monroe Doctrine and from the French episode in, in Mexico, uh, that was just something that the United States could not abide. And so the argument I make in the book is essentially that the United States ended up intervening in its neighbors as a sort of preemptive and preclusive way to keep Europe out of those neighbors. Um, a sort of defensive strategy that nevertheless manifested in a really, really aggressive way. My guest on today's Leonard Lopit at Large is Sean A. Mirsky, M-I-R-S-K-I. His book, We May Dominate the World, Ambition, Anxiety, and the Rise of the American Colossus, published by Public Affairs. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. So what were the political gains and drawbacks of annexation, occupation, and intervention in troubled regional states from 1870 to 1945, as well as the moral challenge of trying not to act like the imperialist old world powers. Yeah, and so I think a lot of people, to the extent they know about U.S. behavior in this period, they assume that we are not on our best behavior, which I think is ends up being a bit of an understatement. Mm. But it's sometimes assumed that the U.S. was doing these interventions with a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of kind of uh, glee. And my research showed that that's just really not the case, that in fact, there was a remarkable reluctance across all sorts of different presidents, including ones that get a reputation as being real imperialists like Theodore Roosevelt, um, all of whom were, with exceptions here and there, but on the whole, quite reluctant to undertake these interventions and quite reluctant to use force against their neighbors. And so, uh, and that was in large part because they understood that doing so was counter to sort of fundamental American values. I mean, this was a country that was conceived in, you know, as part of an anti-colonialist rebellion. It had uh, outsized notions of uh, sovereignty and republicanism and all these kind of uh, classical liberal values that it had sworn to uphold. And nevertheless, its actual behavior in the region was very difficult to distinguish from some of the imperialism of Europe's powers elsewhere in the world. And that was very much attention that leaders uh, struggle to reconcile, especially because these interventions more than anything were aimed at essentially what we would call nation building today, at, at stabilizing and strengthening the United States's weaker neighbors. And the calculation by American statesmen was that weak neighbors offered an opportunity for European expansion, that essentially a state that is uh, failing or failed in today's states 
creates power vacuums, creates disorder politically, economically in ways that make it very easy for Europe imperialist powers to expand. And the United States didn't want that. And so in order to prevent that from happening, it started to intervene in its neighbors in order to try and stabilize and strengthen them to, to get rid of this disorder and help them uh, develop into more uh, stable states that could affirmatively keep Europe out. Not the just Europe, but also Japan, right? Also Japan. This also occurred in in uh, in, in the context of Hawaii's annexation. Um, but the problem that the United States faced is that it never really found a good way of stabilizing its neighbors, uh, at least in, in a sort of military way. I mean, every time the United States went in militarily to, let's say, do a regime change or to install a protectorate or even to occupy the country, the end result was always more instability, more destabilization in ways that just sort of accentuated the overall dilemma that the United States faced. And so you asked about the drawbacks of American policy. I mean, in large part, the American policy of stabilization was a complete failure because it actually led to a lot of destabilization of the region. But the one thing it did accomplish, and the most important thing from the United States' perspective, was that it did prevent Europe from actually intervening, that up until the end of World War I, Europe was more or less uh, boxed out from the region, which was, of course, the most important thing from the United States' perspective. Weren't there a number of regional crises, Haiti, Chile, twice in Venezuela, Nicaragua, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, and even some others? Sometimes it seemed like the region was constantly in crisis. And again, some of those crises were kind of U.S. provoked, others weren't. Um, you mentioned Venezuela. So in, in 1902, for example, uh, Germany and Great Britain decided that they were going to intervene in Venezuela because Venezuela owed the money and had not paid it back. Hmm. And Germany and Great Britain sent this joint fleet to Venezuela that essentially uh, 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 came into Venezuelan ports uh, and sunk the entire Venezuelan Navy and then started uh, essentially bombarding various uh, kind of fortifications along the Venezuelan coast. And the idea was that if you continue blockading Venezuela's coast and you continue using force against it, um, Venezuela eventually is going to capitulate and pay you the money that is owed. And from the United States perspective, of course, this is exactly what it does not want. This is the sort of behavior that is technically allowed under international law at the time, but nevertheless raises a very real risk of a more permanent establishment of European influence of the sort that the Monroe Doctrine does not allow. And so both with that episode and with others, you saw the United States react qu quite aggressively. Um, in the Venezuela context, uh, Theodore Roosevelt assembles for the first time in American history, the entire combined US Navy in one spot in the Caribbean, mm -hmm. and then goes to the German ambassador in Washington and says, if you don't agree to arbitrate your dispute with Venezuela within 10 days, I'm going to send the fleet south and essentially declare war on Germany. And it's just one of these many sort of remarkable moments where the U.S. was openly threatening war against Europe's great powers because it cared so much about the Monroe Doctrine and, and the need to defend it against uh, European uh, depredations. But hasn't Venezuela continued to be a thorn in the side of the United States? <laughs> Uh, it has. I mean, with it depends on the period you look at. Uh, in this particular uh, period, uh, the uh, Venezuela was led by a leader that was uh, almost delighted in upsetting uh, foreign powers. Um, but he was eventually toppled in a coup, I believe, in 1908. And uh, 
the kind of dictator that came to power in Venezuela ended up actually being relatively pro-U.S. for many decades. But as in Venezuela, as in so many other countries, uh, you know, the region does oftentimes swing between leaders that are, you know, relatively, I don't necessarily want to say pro-American, but at least not uh, openly anti-American and those that are, you know, very much anti-American uh, in their sort of political philosophies and, and, and public relations. Um, and in large part, that that reflects uh, the U.S. legacy in the region. I mean, all these interventions in, in our neighbors' affairs did not go, by, you know, did not uh, did not vanish from the memories of of our neighbors. Uh, it's funny because many Americans don't know the history in this region. I certainly didn't before I started, you know, sitting down and researching for this book. But if you ask, you know, a Haitian or a Dominican about whether the U.S. has ever occupied their country, they will say, you know, quite quickly, yes, and tell you many more details than you sort of might might um, might know offhand. In a couple of cases, we wound up involved in these countries in a much deeper way. The Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico is now a part of the United States. That's right. I mean, and even the Philippines, we annexed the Philippines and it was part of the United States through the 1940s. Um, the other example that you mentioned earlier is Hawaii, which we annexed in 1898, um, uh, in part because we were concerned that Japan was about to annex it. Um, but uh, but yes, there was this brief and in, in fairness, uh, one thing that's worth noting is that the U.S., the U.S. up until 1898, uh, annexation had been sort of its go to uh, last resort method of keeping territory out of the uh, grasp of European powers. But in 1898, we end up annexing the Philippines. The immediate result is the Philippine-American War, which is one of the just most horrific wars the United States has ever fought. The Filipinos were fighting for independence. The United States was essentially suppressing that independence movement uh, quite bloodily. Uh, it was a jungle war uh, and American soldiers were quite racist. And so uh, there's uh, a legacy arising out of that war that includes, you know, uh, a fairly significant um, violations of, of human rights. And the the entire slog ended up sort of i think disenchanting much of the country over the prospect of annexation in the future and so after 1898 after 1899 you really only see one other example of annexation in any significant way in u.s history and that's the annexation of the danish west indies by uh woodrow wilson uh in the middle of world war one again as a sort of preemptive way of keeping it out of uh, german hands and of course, those islands uh, are now the U.S. Virgin Islands uh, today. But that is really, I think, the last sort of significant annexation in, in American history. So to becoming an interventionist power in our own hemisphere require a dangerous moral compromise? I think it did in the sense that, that the United States, in its ideal world, it would have had friendly, peaceful relations with its neighbors. Uh, the United States always would have been first among equals just by virtue of its size and, and uh, other kind of aspects. But, but there was never, I think, a really a premeditated plan to sort of reduce the region to vassal status. And it, as I mentioned before, and there was in fact a large uh, number of American policymakers who were quite reluctant to use force because they realized that it wasn't really consistent with American values. And so, um, one of the points that I make in the book is that it's not so much that the United States foreign policy reveals that the United States didn't have these values, didn't have these principles. 
Rather, I think the point is that the United States had these values and these principles, but they were simply overridden by security imperatives that the United States considered relatively more important. So there was the moral challenge of not acting like the imperialist old world powers? Exactly. I mean, the United States was sort of constantly uh, comparing itself to Europe's powers and, and trying to do so in a way that emphasized the differences between the United States and those powers. And, and sometimes, though, given the way the United States acted, it was very hard to sort of reconcile the two. I mean, Woodrow Wilson, in the wake of World War I, goes over to Europe to negotiate the Treaty of Versailles, and he's preaching the creed of self-determination and democracy and, and all that. And for Europeans, uh, this is a little bit hard to square with the fact that Woodrow Wilson's administration has also occupied Haiti, has occupied the Dominican Republic, has garrisoned parts of Cuba, Panama, Nicaragua, uh, and has intervened you know, across the rest of the hemisphere, including multiple times in Mexico. And it, it's this sort of... Um, this sort of double standard, this this mm -hmm. hypocrisy that um, I think really uh, strikes a lot of viewers both then and now as sort of being uh, difficult to kind of uh, reconcile with the way that the United States saw its behavior. Did the annexation of Haiti in the war with Spain in 1898 to liberate Cuba uh, mean that the United States had joined the Great Power Club? Yes, it, it, absolutely. What, what was I mean, called by the, the Great Power Club? Yes. So uh, there was sort of understanding at the time among kind of uh, European elites and American elites that certain of the world's uh, states were great powers. Uh, the kind of the, the nation states that had military force uh, such that they could uh, put up a serious fight against any other power in the world. And in the run up to the Spanish-American War in 1898, the United States had almost everything it needed to be a great power. I mean, it was a massive economy. Uh, it's uh, it was a massive population. Uh, it was the world's research lab, its bread basket, its factory floor. I mean, really, the United States had all the ingredients for great power status. But what it didn't necessarily have was the credibility, the sort of resolve that comes that is necessary to be a great power. And uh, for better or worse, that is a resolve that's really only forged in uh, oftentimes in war. And so it wasn't until the United States stunning victory over Spain in a matter of months in the Spanish-American War that both Europe and the United States sort of realized, aha, this is the, the latest, I believe the seventh great power has joined the world. Um, and going forward, the United States was very much um, respected and seen in a different light uh, because of its uh, victory and, the, and, and what it meant. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. my conversation with Sean Mirsky. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, We May Dominate the World. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2 
WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Sean Mursky. His book that we're discussing, We May Dominate the World, Ambition, Anxiety, and the Rise of the American Colossus, is published by Public Affairs. He's worked on national security issues for several U.S. presidential administrations, is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, currently practices national security, foreign relations, and appellate law at uh, Arnold and Porter, Porter K. Scholler LLP, and he's also a visiting scholar at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Have I left anything out? No, you haven't. Uh, and in fact, you've been overly generous. Why, did I add things? <laughs> no, no. Well, I should say, uh, in in fairness, I am a term member at the Council on Foreign Relations rather than a, a full member. But uh, other than that, you got it right. Okay. What role does the Panama Canal play in all of this? It connected the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. Uh, didn't it also double the size of Theodore Roosevelt's Navy as a result? It did. The Panama Canal was massively important uh, to the rise of the United States and to its overall strategy. Uh, the problem that the United States faced before the Panama Canal is that it was a continental power. It had major metropo uh, met metropolitan areas on both the East Coast and the West Coast that it needed to protect. The problem, though, was that the only way to get from the East Coast to the West Coast uh, by ship was essentially to sail all the way down to the tip of South America and then sail all the way up to the uh, other side of the uh, country. And this took quite a while. In, in crises, there was no uh, guarantee that the United States would be able to make that journey in time. Um, and so the canal was really important, not only economically in terms of increasing trade between the coasts and allowing the United States to more easily trade with Asia and places like that, but it was also very important militarily because it meant that any naval forces that were stationed on one side of the country could be relatively easily transitioned to the other coast uh, just by going through the canal. And so for many generations, um, U.S. naval leaders uh, were militating in favor of a canal, but it was really only in the wake of the Spanish-American War that it became uh, a national priority. Uh, and then it was eventually Theodore Roosevelt that sort of executed on, on getting that canal and starting to build it. And didn't what was dubbed the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine force the United States to become an international police power? Yeah, so the I mentioned earlier that the Monroe Doctrine started out at this, as this sort of defensive declaration that the United States would consider it dangerous to its peace and safety if Europe tried to expand its influence into the Western Hemisphere. But the thing that the Monroe Doctrine left out was the means by which the United States would use to essentially ensure that that defensive objective was met. And Roosevelt, in the wake of the Venezuela intervention by Great Britain and Germany that I mentioned earlier, spent a lot of time thinking about the need for the UN United States to start preempting European intervention in the region. And what he concluded was that there were certain areas of the Western Hemisphere that were so either unstable because they were, you know, politically uh, racked by civil war and revolution or, or deep in debt to European powers, 
or states that were sort of uh, engaged in what Roosevelt called chronic wrongdoing. They were just misbehaving and sort of almost purposefully annoying the European powers. And Roosevelt uh, um, concluded that those two categories of states, the sort of anarchic states and the chronic wrongdoing states, uh, presented too serious a threat of European intervention, and the United States needed to sort of affirmatively do something about it. And so in late 1904, he declares what becomes known as the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, in which he says that in order to enforce the Monroe Doctrine, the United States has to act as an international policeman. It has to make sure that its neighbors pay their debts and generally abide by international law and sort of um, what Roosevelt calls, you know, the dictates of, of civilized society. Uh, and so the idea is that these anarchical states, the United States, in as, an, as a last resort, will use force to stabilize them in order to make sure that they comply with their international obligations. Same goes for these kind of rogue states that, that Roosevelt liked to call the chronic wrongdoing states. And so the Roosevelt corollary was this just... Um, in, in a lot of ways, it was a sort of logical extension of the Monroe Doctrine, but in other ways, it really seemed like a sort of perverse, uh, uh, a perversion of it. The Monroe Doctrine had originally had a defensive intent of sort of keeping the Western Hemisphere safe from Europe. But now the United States was saying that in order to do that, the United States Hope we lost you. itself might have to use force against flipping of, you know, strategy from a defensive strategy to sort of offensive tactics was really what um, many people then and since have sort of criticized um, the, the Roosevelt Corollary for. And then after Roosevelt, President Wilson's Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan argued that the United States should restore order and support democracy in its mortal combat against imperialism. Yeah, well, and so the Woodrow uh, Wilson administration comes into office and you know, the previous two administrations of Roosevelt and Taft have been ha have seen a lot of interventions launched in the region. And so we had World Woodrow War Wilson World War 1 which uh probably made the United States into a major power at that point. Absolutely. So World War One ends up being critically important to sort of the rise of the United States. Um, and Woodrow Wilson's you know, desire first to stay out of the war and then eventually the decision to sort of uh, intervene in it um, ends up being a real, I think, turning point in American foreign policy. But even before that, the, the Wilson administration sort of came in on, and had campaigned on a platform of actually uh, reversing all the interventions that the Republican administrations of previous years had been doing. And so that quote that you read from William Jennings Bryan, who was um, Wilson's Secretary of State, sort of demonstrated how the uh, administration really came in with good intentions and came in desiring to sort of uh, change the way that the United States was interacting with its neighbors. The problem is, of course, that the Wilson administration, far from repudiating the interventionism, of previous years ends up actually uh, seeing the peak of it. Uh, under Wilson, the United States just really goes crazy in the region. And, and in large part because of World War I, the United States was worried once World War I broke out that uh, once the war ended, Europe's great powers would essentially then move on the Western hemisphere, either because they'd won the war in Europe and they were essentially now looking to expand their power or because they'd lost the war in Europe, and now they were basically looking to recoup their losses in the in the Western Hemisphere. And so either way, the, the Wilson administration was really kind of operating under this sort of crisis mentality that 
if the if the United States didn't get the region in hand by the time World War I ended, the result would be disaster. And after the war, Bryan said he thought President Wilson had been too harsh on Germany and resigned after Wilson sent Germany a veiled threat of war in response to the sinking of the Lusitania by a German U-boat. He did. He did. Brian, Brian's one of the more interesting characters in uh, American foreign policy because he's a three-time Democratic nominee for president uh, uh, in uh, 1896, where famously he makes his cross of gold speech in 1900, where he runs on anti-imperialism as the main plank of his platform. Um, and then again, I believe in 1908. Um, and uh and Brian just consistently loses uh, the, these presidential contests, but he finally comes into the administration of Wilson. And they end up disagreeing on a lot. I mean, one kind of prominent example is neutrality in World War I, and then, of course, the sort of aftermath of, of the war. Um, but one place where they're really kind of surprisingly united is on regional policy. And even though Will, even though Brian is this sort of committed anti-imperialist, and even though Wilson is this committed anti-imperialist, they both ended up being very aggressive and very non-neutral in their behavior in the region. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Sean Mursky. His book, We May Dominate the World, Ambition, Anxiety, and the Rise of the American Colossus, is published by Public Affairs. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Don't you argue that the international order established by the U.S. after World War II was developed by well-intentioned but bloody imperialism in Latin America, the Caribbean, and the Pacific? How did that carry into the, the Cold War? One of the arguments I make towards the end of the book is that in the aftermath of World War II, when the United States is busy constructing the international order, uh, it ends up looking to its regional order and its sort of foreign policy in the Western Hemisphere as the as the template, as the blueprints for that international order. And that really shouldn't be that surprising. I mean, right up until World War II and the Cold War, the Western Hemisphere was the most important region in the world for American security. And I think nowadays we tend to sort of look back at our earlier history through a Euro European-centric lens, in large part because that's the way that the Cold War itself unfolded. But up until World War II, it really was the Western Hemisphere that mattered. And so it's sort of not surprising that the United States ends up scaling up a large number of kind of both the institutions, the norms, the kind of relationships that has developed in the region into an international order, but also some of the darker aspects of its foreign policy, including kind of its interventionist uh, approach to things. And one of the um, points I make at the end of the book is that much of the kind of interventionism that occurred during the Cold War is in many ways a continuation and, and a, a legacy of the previous intervention uh, interventions that the United States was launching in Latin America. How much has it varied depending on who has been the president and what party was in power? So uh, in I, it, it matters to some extent, but I think less than many times uh, Americans kind of appreciate. I mean, as I, as I previously mentioned, interventionism, you know, Theodore Roosevelt is sometimes seen as, you know, the arch imperialist, the rough rider who's eager to invade every country. But he actually ends up being remarkably restrained in a lot of ways in his use of force against uh, his neighbors. Whereas someone like Woodrow Wilson, who comes from a different party, who comes from completely different sort of political beliefs, 
who's very committed anti-imperialist, nevertheless ends up being the far more sort of imperialistic of the two presidents. And I think it just sort of underscores that the factors that lead presidents to use force and to make those decisions are oftentimes not just a reflection of their underlying philosophies or values or, or ways of seeing the world, but sometimes uh, are sort of the uh, result of the way international situations have developed and the ways in which um, uh, leaders can feel that they're boxed into making uh, uh, particular decisions. Does any of this history give us a clue into the current moves by Russia and China and how rising powers tend to embrace expansion and aggression? I think it does. One of the points that I make in the book is that historians have always uh, understood that rising powers tend to be aggressive and expansionist. And by that, I mean that rising powers tend to pick fights with other great powers. They tend to meddle in the affairs of their neighbors. And in general, they try and make bigger and bigger nuisances of themselves that they try and dominate greater and greater slices of the world. And so I think we're certainly seeing that with China today. Uh, Russia is not a rising power, but in a lot of ways, it's uh, nevertheless sort of behaving in, in a similarly aggressive and expansionist way. And the point that I make uh, at the end of the book is that large parts of the way that those powers are acting today are not that dissimilar from the way the United States itself acted a century ago. And that you can go even further and argue that some of the same sort of dilemmas that led the United States to use force are also operating and sort of constraining the decisions of leaders in Russia and China today. And so just to give you one example, the United States, when, when France invaded and occupied a country on its border, the United States reacted quite aggressively during the Civil War and eventually, you know, launched a proxy war to kick the French out. Um Russia today, uh, on its border, Ukraine, it considers Ukraine, which is a country on its border, to be immensely important to its national security. And there's at least an interesting argument to be made that the sort of uh, West's decision to expand NATO to eventually encompass uh, Ukraine may have led to sort of security fears inside the Kremlin that uh, led it to consider using force to prevent that from happening. Now, I don't want to overstate the case. The U.S. and U.S. a century ago and Russia today are very different powers. And the way that Putin talks about Ukraine suggests that he has sort of other ideologically minded sort of reasons for invading Ukraine, including his desire to create a greater Russia. But there's at least interesting parallels in, which, in, in the way in which both the United States and Russia and China and Iran and all these other powers act to carve out spheres of influence for themselves and their immediate neighborhoods. These areas where they are preeminent and in an ideal world where uh, no other great power is present. And I think that just sort of reflects the fact that regardless of what kind of power you are, regardless of what century it is, you are always as a state going to be interested in sort of controlling your immediate neighborhood and ensuring that your security is preserved because there's no other major competitor nearby you. The United States is the only country that's engaged in nuclear warfare, but haven't there been concerns expressed about the possibility of a nuclear war now? Yeah, especially in uh, especially in Ukraine, um, where the concern among some um, some policymakers and scholars is that because uh, Russia sees Ukraine as so important to its national security, there's a risk that if it loses the war there too much, that it may engage in uh, nuclear in a nuclear strike as sort of a 
uh, as a last resort to sort of protect its interests. Um, I think in large part that concern, it rests less on an analysis of Russia's security as a whole and more about Putin's individual kind of calculations. The risk, I think, is that Putin um, will believe that his regime will rise or fall depending on what happens in Ukraine, and that if he loses in Ukraine, that he will likely be forced out of power and potentially even end up in front of a firing squad. And so given that sort of uh, risk, uh, some people have suggested that Putin may want may try using nuclear weapons, again, as a sort of last resort to forestall that uh, particular outcome. Um, it's hard to say exactly what that risk is, but even if it's a relatively minor risk, it's given uh, kind of the the consequences of nuclear war, it's it's nevertheless one that I think we, we need to be taking seriously. Well, on the one hand, we've been talking a lot about countries marching into other countries, but isn't one of the big issues today economic warfare? So that's certainly part of it. And it's actually interesting that even a century ago, uh, we were... I don't know if I would characterize it as uh, warfare, but we were certainly we had developed very sophisticated economic strategies uh, in pursuit of our sort of political ends and in pursuit of the Monroe Doctrine. And so, for instance, the Taft administration followed something called dollar diplomacy, which had a number of different elements. But one of them was that um, many of the United States' neighbors at this time were heavily indebted to European bankers. They had taken out these massive loans, oftentimes on really unfair terms, uh, to European banks. And the United States was worried that uh, European powers could use these loans as a financial leash to control uh, countries in the Western Hemisphere. And so what the Taft administration ended up doing is that it uh, worked with uh, Wall Street banks to essentially refund many of these European loans through American banks so that these loans would now be controlled by U.S. banks. Um, and uh, it was a sort of a, a clever bit of economic statecraft to sort of decrease the Europe's stake in the region. And we're seeing similar, uh, similar sort of foreign policies today. I mean, just to give you one example, uh, China is pursuing uh, the Chinese equivalent of dollar diplomacy, uh, in which it uh, oftentimes is refunding uh, loans uh, in its national currency away from dollars, in large part because it wants to sort of undermine the overall U.S.-dominated uh, uh, financial system in the world. And you see kind of other aspects in the way that China uses uh, loans for political purposes, um, that again sort of emphasize that a large part of this competition is in fact economic. I want to only have a, a couple of minutes left and I want to quote something that you wrote. Quote, since the Soviet Union's collapse, several of Russia's neighbors have experienced chronic domestic unrest, including color revolutions that replace neutral or Russia-aligned regimes with pro-Western ones. Moscow blames Europe and the United States for the trouble and has responded by aggressively exploiting its neighbors' instability for its own ends. In just uh, the minute or so that we have left, how does that relate to the topics that you're addressing in this book? Well, it ends up being a very similar problem to what the United States was worried about. The United States was worried that its disorderly neighbors uh, essentially presented an open power vacuum that Europe's great powers could you could exploit to come back into the region. And I think from Russia's perspective today, um, you could at least tell a similar story about what's happening in Russia's immediate neighborhood, where 
a large number of these post-Soviet states are equally unstable in the way that the United States' neighbors were once unstable. And the United and, and Russia is just worried that the United States is going to take advantage of that instability to expand its own influence into Russia's region. And from Russia's perspective, it's safer in a world in which the United States is not right up at its borders, where NATO is not right up at its borders. And so we shouldn't necessarily be too surprised that Russia's uh, reacting violently uh, in response to, to some of those uh, developments in its neighborhood. And I want to thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been fascinating. Uh, the book, We May Dominate the World, Ambition, Anxiety, and the Rise of the American Colossus by Sean A. Mirsky, published by Public Affairs. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And uh, that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcast. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. People have asked me to spell out my name. It's L-O-P-A-T-E. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you because we have been going through a rather rough economic period uh, ever since the pandemic hit, uh, and uh, we haven't really fully recovered. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2, WBAI.org. Because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopit at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, We May Dominate the World by Sean Mirsky. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy for $10 a month, $15, $20, $25, whatever you're comfortable with. For as long as you wish to do it, it allows us to plan for the future. We know that money will be coming in next month, the month after. And we will show our appreciation by sending a WBAI tote bag to anyone who, who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies on listener donations. We don't take ads, uh, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to London Lopez at large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212 2092950 to play your part in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax deductible support. And we hope that you can join us again tomorrow when our guest will be David Rothenberg. We'll see you then. <laughs>